Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Red Salute, welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. We're going to continue our read-through of Rethinking Socialism today. This will be part two of probably a four-part series. Again, as I mentioned before, I'm going to be having physical copies of this book produced, also copies of the last two books we read through produced. So if you want those at no cost, other than maybe shipping, if you are somewhere where it's like really expensive to ship to, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at ManifestPod. If you want to support the show at all, which is greatly appreciated but completely unnecessary, you can find my show on anchor.fm. Just go ahead and hit that little support button. All right, let's get back to the book. The income that peasants received under the commune distribution system was basically for meeting their living expenses. The accumulation fund was already deducted from the total income before it was distributed to the peasants. The accumulation fund took care of investment for long-term development. When peasants had more income than they needed for daily expenses, it was used as a contingency fund and for the purchases of luxury items such as bicycles, sewing machines, watches, and radios. Under the commune system, peasants had little or no opportunity to turn their savings into capital. Even though the majority of communes did very well, there were a significant number of poor communes. These poor communes had infertile land and were in areas that had higher incidence of floods and or drought. There was little surplus left each year, so little could be invested to expand production. These communes often had to rely on state aid, but state aid was limited. Under the collective ownership, the distribution within a team and brigade was equitable, but at the same time, the rich brigades and communes got richer and the poor brigades and communes got poorer. The income differences became widened after the mid-1960s when brigades and communes began to develop their own industries. The brigades and communes which had surplus were able to invest in these industries and in turn accumulated even more capital. These brigades or communes also had the advantage of a good location where there were major highways or railways. Thus, they were able to sell the industrial products they produced outside of the immediate areas. The poor communes usually had infertile land and were located in areas where the transportation system was inadequate. This is the limitation of collective ownership. When a brigade was prosperous due to the expansion of its industries, the benefits only went as far as members of the brigade. The exchange between the brigades was based on equal value exchange. Therefore, even within a commune, there were rich and poor brigades. The law of equal exchange also applied to the exchange between the communes. By the end of 1970, the income ratio between the rich and poor communes might be as much as 10 to 1. The collective ownership could not solve the problem of the widening gaps in the countryside. The state attempted to moderate the income gaps by state aid, but state aid to poor areas was limited. Unless the accounting unit could be expanded, the unequal development would become worse. Mao was worried about the coexistence of the two types of ownership, state ownership and collective ownership, and he was keenly aware of the need to resolve this contradiction before it became worse. 
B. Socialist Projects in the State Sector As we explained earlier, legal transfer of the ownership of the means of production to the state in 1956 could not be used to indicate the departure point of socialism. It is the policies after the legal transfer that determine whether the transition is socialist or capitalist. Based on concrete policies, the state-owned enterprises between 1956 and 1978 were socialist projects. During this period, the state had effective control of these enterprises. Individual enterprises had the possession of the means of production, but the state effectively limited the possession through the political control. The state prohibited individual enterprises from buying or selling in the market. The state, by drawing up the economic plan, determined what each enterprise produced, including the categories of products and the quantity of each category. In the economic plan, the state determined the prices of the products sold by the enterprise to the state, as well as the prices of raw materials and the machinery that the enterprises bought from the state. The enterprises also received wage funds from the state, which went directly to the payment of workers' wages and benefits. At the end of each year, the enterprises handed over their profits, revenues minus costs excluding depreciation. The state subsidized the enterprises that incurred losses. Then, according to the economic plan, the state appropriated funds to different enterprises for the purchase of new machinery and equipment and or to build new buildings and plants for expanded production. In China, the state was able to impose all these legal limitations on individual enterprises. The state, in fact, dominated the use of the enterprise's possessions. In other words, the state had both legal ownership and economic control of the means of production. The distinction between legal ownership and economic ownership is important. Still, there were elements of private capital in the state-owned enterprises. Until the Cultural Revolution, the capitalists still received fixed dividends and they were still involved in the management of state enterprises. However, they were under strict state control and with the expansion of the state-owned enterprises, the relative share of private capital declined significantly. The state enterprises are socialist projects and the direction of the state enterprises is toward phasing out commodity production and wage labor. During the period between 1956 and 1978, the economic reality corresponded with the legal limitation imposed on the enterprises. The state took away from the enterprises production units, the responsibility for its profit or loss. The enterprises sold all of their products to the state at preset prices, thus leaving little room for managers and individual state enterprise to involve themselves in the value valorization process. When socialist projects were incorporated into planning, it became possible to change the purpose of production from value valorization to the satisfaction of the people's need. At the same time, planning made it possible to pursue economic policies that focus on long-term overall development. In each individual enterprise, workers were entitled to certain wages and benefits. Managers in these enterprises received the wage fund from the state to cover their total wage bill plus the cost of providing benefits to workers. The transfer of wage funds from state to workers through the enterprises removed from the managers of the enterprises the responsibility for meeting the wage and benefit payments from their revenues as well as the power of extracting surplus value from the workers. The prices of products and or input were not set according to their values, and the success or failure of an enterprise was not judged by their profits or losses. Instead, different standards were used to measure the performance of the enterprises. 
These standards were quantity, speed of production, quality, and saving of raw materials and labor. The majority of state enterprises not only met the targets set for these standards, they strove to exceed the targets and their own record targets in the past. State ownership and political intervention made it possible for managers of state enterprises to dissociate themselves from being the agents of capital, and thus it was a step taken in the direction of phasing out wage labor. Workers in state enterprises had permanent employment status, an eight-hour day, and an eight-grade wage scale. They received medical benefits, subsidized food, housing, and child care. Workers were also entitled to paid maternity and sick leaves, pension, and other benefits for retirement. It took industrial workers in capitalist countries many years of often bloody struggle to gain similar rights and benefits. The Chinese workers got them overnight through the political power of the state. However, there existed a contradiction between the workers and the state and party bureaucrats. Managers in state enterprises who had the power and responsibilities to carry out day-to-day -day operation of the enterprises could not turn their power into material wealth for themselves. More importantly, those higher-level state and party bureaucrats who were supposed to control the managers of state enterprises were also in a position to use their power to benefit themselves. In China during the socialist transition, this contradiction was resolved from time to time by the mass movements. Before the reform began in 1979, those in powerful positions were very much aware that they were under the watchful eyes of the masses. As we stated earlier, a socialist project is not something with certain fixed and unchanged features. Rather, the socialist project itself has to go through basic changes during the transition towards socialism and communism. A socialist project, like the state enterprise instituted in 1956 in China, had the danger of becoming an established institution if continuing changes were not made in the production process, including many work rules, within the state enterprise. In other words, these continuing changes were necessary to alter the dominating and the dominated relations between the managers and the direct producers within the state enterprise. This is also why Mao Zedong considered the adoption of the Anshan Constitution in state enterprises as especially important. 2. The dual characteristics of capitalist projects and socialist projects during the social transition. During the socialist transition, it may be necessary to institute more capitalist projects under certain circumstances. The new economic policy in the Soviet Union was a good example. NEP was a necessary retreat and it should be recognized as such. Therefore, one cannot use a single event or policy to determine the general direction of transition. In fact, during the socialist transition, capitalist projects and socialist projects coexist, and at the same time, socialist projects compete with the capitalist projects. During the socialist transition, it may be necessary to institute some capitalist projects. One example was the land reform mentioned earlier. Land reform was necessary before the collectivization of agriculture. Therefore, land reform was a capitalist project with dual characteristics. Calling a project capitalist only indicates the principal aspect of the dual character. There were other capitalist projects with dual characteristics. Mao made a comment on state capitalism in July 1953. Mao said, quote, The present-day capitalist economy in China is a capitalist economy which for the most part is under the control of the people's government, which is linked with the state-owned social economy in various forms and supervised by the workers. 
it is not an ordinary but a particular kind of capitalist economy, namely a state capitalist economy of a new type. It exists not chiefly to make profits for the capitalist, but to meet the needs of the people in the state. True, a share of the profits produced by the workers goes to the capitalist, but that is only a small part, about one quarter of the total. The remaining three quarters are produced for the workers, in the form of the welfare fund, for the state, in the form of income tax, and for expanding productive capacity, a small part of which produces profits for the capitalist. Therefore, this state capitalist economy of a new type takes on a socialist character to a very great extent and benefits the workers and the state." Unquote. The period between the very beginning of the People's Republic in 1978 was a period of socialist transition during which socialist projects competed with capitalist projects. Like capitalist projects, socialist projects also have their dual characteristics. The socialist project contains both capitalist elements and communist elements. Calling a project socialist only indicates the principal aspect of its dual characteristics. For example, the state enterprise as a socialist project that still contained the dominating and dominated relations between the managers and direct producers, which was a capitalist element. During the socialist transition, changes have to take place to get rid of these capitalist elements. Moreover, up to the very end of the socialist transition period, China still had two types of ownership, state and collective, and it was still not possible to have distribution according to labor on a national scale. It was obvious what a worker in the state sector received for an hour of work was very much higher than what a peasant received for an hour of work. State workers also received many benefits, medical, educational, vacation, pension, child care, and more, while peasants did not. Differences also existed among peasants of different communes. The worth of a work point, gongfen, in a rich commune, team or brigade, could be several times of that in a poor commune, team or brigade. There were also eight different grades of wages for state workers. If the socialist transition had continued, the two types of ownership would have to be phased out eventually to form one single ownership. It would have taken many more years to distribute products according to labor on a national scale. When distribution could finally be made according to labor, there would still be the bourgeois right, a non-communist element. However, as early as 1958, Working people in China were ignoring the principle of equal exchange. During the Great Leap Forward, the Chinese people were so enthusiastic in their endeavor to build a socialist China that they worked long hours into nights and never questioned whether they were receiving equal exchange for their labor. Therefore, it was possible to have communist elements even in the initial phase of the socialist transition. The peasants in Dazai and the workers in Daqing were held as heroic examples for the nation to learn under. Under Chen Yunkui's leadership, the peasants in Dazai overcame the most severe conditions, and they worked long hours without rest in bitter cold weather, terracing the land and building irrigation to prevent floods and droughts. The thought of carefully calculating how much each would get for an hour of their work never even entered into their minds. These peasants only cared to know that what they did was going to benefit everyone in Dazai in the long run. Similarly, in the Daqing oil refinery, Workers worked long and hard hours to complete their projects and created what amounted to an industrial miracle. They were motivated by a much bigger and higher goal than receiving an equal pay for equal work. Mao considered these communist elements possible throughout the socialist transition. 
Mao de-emphasized the material incentive of work. Liu and Dang, on the other hand, treated the two phases, initial and advanced, of the transition as distinguishably separate from each other. Liu and Dang regarded the actual events during the socialist transition as being premature for the initial phase of communism. In contrast to Mao, they overemphasized the material incentive of work and insisted that workers would work hard only when they were rewarded with bonuses. They disregarded the possibility of any communist elements during the socialist transition. Marx did say that there will be an initial phase and a higher phase in the transition from capitalism to communism. Each phase has certain characteristics. However, we do not think he meant that there should be a partition between the phases as if they were separate entities. For that reason, there are both capitalist elements and communist elements during the socialist transition. Mao believed that both capitalist projects and socialist projects had dual characteristics. On the other hand, Liu and later Deng argued that any communist elements during the initial stage would be premature. It becomes more clear today that what Deng and his supporters have done is to use the, quote, initial phase of socialism, unquote, and the emphasis they placed on material incentives as excuses to expand commodity production and to institute their capitalist projects in order to reverse the direction of the transition. 3. Competition between socialist projects and capitalist projects. A. Competition in the collective sector. We can use the competition between capitalist projects and socialist projects to analyze the situation of the countryside after the revolution. Land reform, as we explained earlier, was a capitalist project, but from the perspective of Mao and those who supported the transition towards communism. Land reform was also a part of the overall socialist strategy. However, for Liu and Dang, land reform was part of their overall capitalist strategy. This explains why from the very beginning, some Chinese Communist Party members strongly opposed the collectivization of agriculture, and their opposition continued after the formation of the People's Communes. Following this line of reasoning, it is easy to explain why the current regime in China praises Mao as a national hero during the Revolutionary War and portrays him as a villain since the Great Leap Forward. Although land reform was a capitalist project, the way land reform was carried out made a difference on the development afterwards. Land reform in China was not simply an economic policy of land redistribution, taking the land deeds from landlords and handing them out to peasants. Rather, it was a mass movement sponsored by the Chinese Communist Party for economic, political, and ideological changes. The CCP mobilized the poor and lower middle peasants and organized them to seize the land from the landlords and in exposing the landlords' crimes. The enthusiasm of the peasants swept across the countryside. They were the main actors in land reform. The land reform turned passive peasants into active participants, and then their action went beyond the land reform to the cooperative movement that followed. In the land reform mass movement, as was in any other mass movement, the masses needed to be clear what was the opposite. The opposite in the land reform movement set up by the Chinese Communist Party was the landlords and some rich peasants. Throughout the land reform, a new ideology was appropriated among the peasants. Even though the peasants always experienced exploitation and suffering, the ideology of feudalism, like the ideology of any exploitative society, justified such exploitation. The mass movement turned the old ideology upside down, and at the same time it articulated and appropriated the new ideology. 
the new ideology professed that it was wrong for the landlords and the rich peasants to take the products of labor from the poor and lower middle peasants and it was wrong for a privileged few who held the power to abuse and enslave the underprivileged majority it was the trend in the atmosphere which was created in the land reform that encouraged the poor and lower middle peasants to express themselves for the first time in their lives when these peasants finally dared to speak their mind serious crimes committed by some landlords were exposed land appropriation changed the dominant dominated economic relationship between the landlord and the peasants the new ideology reversed the master-serf relationship between the landlord and the peasants mass participation in the land reform gave the landless peasants the determination to right past wrongs sparked their enthusiasm and empowered them to carry the land reform to its completion and beyond for this reason we conclude that even though china's land reform from 1949 to 1952 was a capitalist project the class stand of the chinese communist party was very clear so was the direction of the transition at that historical point the collectivization of agriculture from elementary co-ops to the people's communes made it possible for the workers to form and solidify their alliance with the peasants since the majority of china's working people were peasants the alliance between the workers and the peasants was the decisive factor in winning the struggle against the bourgeoisie after the land reform there were rich upper middle middle lower middle and poor peasants without the collectivization movement with whom could the proletariat form alliance the polarization of the peasantry after the land reform if it had continued would have given the bourgeoisie the excellent chance to form their own alliance with rich peasants who had surplus grain and other products to sell when the state took complete control over the buying and selling of grain and other raw material by implementing the unified purchase system in 1953 it took an important step to cut off the connection between the grain merchants in the cities and rich peasants in the countryside after 1953 rich peasants in the countryside had no other option but to sell their surplus grain and other raw material to the state at prices set by the state this policy made it impossible for the merchants and rich peasants to use grain trading and speculation to get rich land reform was a revolution of towering magnitude involving hundreds of millions of people since the land reform changed the social order that existed for more than three thousand years it met with strong resistance from those who lost their economic and political advantages during the process it was a political struggle from the start which only grew much more intensive as the movement progressed when peasants began organizing mutual teams and then the co-ops it was apparent that the rich and upper middle peasants who had comparatively substantial amounts of land and capital would not benefit by joining the team or the co-ops on the other hand the poor and the lower middle peasants who were the majority of the chinese peasant population had few or no productive instruments and only a very small plot of land they faced many difficulties in reproduction let alone any expanded reproduction in many cases these peasants had either lost their land or might lose it in case of personal mishaps and or natural disasters they were eager to find an alternative both the mutual aid teams and elementary co-ops proved that when they pulled their resources together they increased production the middle peasants who could go either way were the crucial elements for the organization of co-ops the middle peasants had a plot of land some productive instruments and one or two strong laborers in the household so they could do well on their own they were inspired by the prospect of becoming rich peasants even though the poor and lower middle peasants were enthusiastic about forming collectives 
With their meager resources, they faced real hardship and might not make it by themselves. Eventually, the middle peasants were won over when they saw the results of cooperation. After the middle peasants joined the co-ops, the rich and upper middle became isolated. Even though the rich and upper middle peasants had more land and more productive instruments, with everyone in the co-ops, they could not hire anyone to work for them. They were forced to join. The formation of co-ops was the only way to block the avenue for the rich and upper middle peasants to enrich themselves by exploiting the labor of others. During the co-op movement, Mao repeatedly reminded the cadres who worked in organizing the cooperatives to make sure that the leadership of the co-ops remained in the hands of the poor and lower middle peasants who supported the movement most strongly. The rich peasants, who would rather see the cooperative movement collapse, often worked to sabotage it whenever they had a chance to do so. It was actually quite remarkable that a cooperative movement of such nature and magnitude was carried out with so little chaos and bloodshed. In addition to the fact that this movement so benefited the majority of the peasants that it enjoyed broad support, the credit for the success should be given to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and the hundreds of thousands of party members at the grassroots level. These lower-level cadres, who had just finished fighting the Revolutionary War and knew next to nothing about organizing cooperatives, except for some experience gained in the previously liberated areas, but who were very much in tune with the needs of their fellow peasants. However, the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party was deeply divided on the direction of the development, not just in China's agriculture, but in the overall development. At the elementary co-op level, the rich and upper-middle peasants still claimed a share of the output produced based on the productive instruments they owned. When the co-ops progressed to the advanced level, the co-ops bought the productive instruments from the rich and upper-middle peasants. As we explained earlier, this socialist project eliminated the distribution of products to households who had owned the capital. The distribution in advanced co-ops was made according to labor contributed only. Through the process of collectivization, the class forces that supported the socialist project led by Mao won. Mao's strategy was to rely on the poor and lower-middle peasants and unite the middle peasants. Under Mao's leadership, the class line of the Chinese Communist Party was clearly revealed. When a socialist project like the advanced co-ops or the communes was instituted, it was against the interest of certain elements of the society. When the cooperative movement progressed to the advanced stage, the ones who lost were clearly those who had to sell their property to the co-ops. These more well-to-do peasants would have been better off if they had been allowed to continuously draw dividends from such property rather than having being paid off with a final lump sum based on a negotiated price to which they had only reluctantly agreed. Those who had gained from the progression of the cooperative movement were clearly the majority of the peasants who had never owned anything but a small strip of land and their own labor. Included in this majority were those families who did not even have any productive labor. They were the elderly peasants without sons and widows with young children. Many of them lost their beloved ones in the Revolutionary War. Mao was very concerned about the livelihood of these people because the state was not in any position to help. Mao said that each cooperative should be able to carry a few of these families. These families could not contribute anything to the pot, but had to eat from the pot. From a purely self-interest point of view, no cooperatives would be willing to carry such a burden. They indeed had to be, in the spirit of cooperation, persuaded to do so. From the analysis above, we can see that certain class forces gained and other class forces lost during the process of collectivization. The class forces which lost their interests were not ready to quietly surrender. 
they had to seek their own representatives and spokespersons, either from within or from without the power base. On the issue of collectivization, Mao's opponents in the Communist Party reflected these class forces, and they continued to push forward their capitalist projects, even after the establishment of the commune. The Three Freedoms and One Contract Scheme was one example of the capitalist projects in the collectivized sector. Liu and Dang strongly supported this capitalist project from the beginning of the advanced co-ops, and continued to push this project after the formation of the communes. The Three Freedoms were the Freedom 1, to enlarge private lots, 2, to promote free markets, and 3, for each individual household to be responsible for its own profit or loss. The one contract was for each individual household to sign a contract with the state for the production of a preset amount of crop. After the preset amount was met, the peasants would be free to sell everything in the free market. As early as 1956, Liu and his supporters strongly advocated the three freedoms in one contract, and at times, forcefully put it into practice. Enlarging private lots encouraged peasants to put more labor and effort into their own land. The promotion of free markets facilitated the sale of products from the peasants' private lots. If individual households were held responsible for its own profit or loss, the accounting unit would be changed from the team to the individual household. This material incentive, according to the promoter of the three freedoms in one contract, would encourage peasants to produce more. Under the commune system, as we showed earlier, private savings could not turn into capital. The accumulation of capital was done collectively, not privately. The accumulation fund belonged to the team for the purchase of new productive instruments that benefited all members of the team. If a capitalist project like the Three Freedoms in One Contract had been allowed to be implemented and to expand, then, instead of the team, each private household would have become the new accounting unit. If the household had been able to earn profits from selling their products in the free market, they could have invested it in new productive tools with which they could have earned more profits. The Three Freedoms in One Contract project promotes the accumulation of private capital, which participates in the distribution of a product. At the same time, under this project, households with a loss would face the danger of losing everything altogether. As far as the promoters of this project were concerned, this would be a good way to get rid of those who could not produce efficiently. The distribution under the Three Freedoms in One Contract returned to the stage of elementary co-ops where owners of capital received larger and larger shares of the products. When Liu and Deng pushed to implement the Three Freedoms in One Contract, they presented the project as if it was only to promote production by providing material incentives to individual peasant households. The hidden agenda of this capitalist project was to reverse the direction of the transition from communism to capitalism.